it happened. At the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shezib when she, when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offense, offspring, rather, not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, and that you may come into me? He answered, I will send a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her, and he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. 
You see, I sent the goat, young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife um, tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The word of the Lord. As we've seen in every account in the Joseph narrative, God's goodness and graciousness does shine through, and we see that here as well. So before we turn to this text, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that it speaks truly, honestly, about what it's like to live in a fallen world. And most of all, Lord, we thank you that despite all of this messiness, you work your good and gracious purposes. You work your good and gracious salvation. And toward that end, Lord, I do pray that all that follows would be faithful to your intention for this text. Lord, and that through it, we would all come to know and to love and desire Christ in a deeper way. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, St. Augustine, when, when he was preparing to preach on the biblical account of, of David's murder of Uriah and his adulterous violation of Bathsheba, <clears throat> Augustine says this, Since God wanted the matter to be written about, he does not mean to hush it up. What I am going to say, therefore, is not what I want to say, but what I am forced to say. And when we approach today's passage, what else can we do but echo the words of Augustine? This is simply a text that we find in Scripture. This is a text that God has given to his church. And as we've repeated each, word, each week, the key passage for understanding the Joseph narrative is this, is, is Joseph's words to his brothers near the end of his life. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
And we see this truth on full display in the present passage. We encounter much, much evil here, but we also find the great and the good graciousness of God. And so, let us work through this passage together. Let us examine the evil. We'll rejoice in the good. And in the end, we'll we'll, we'll try to find out why exactly does this suddenly pop up in the Joseph narrative? What is going on here? And if we look closely at the very beginning, we find that this passage actually begins with a kind of family betrayal. We read, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. As commentator Leon Cass notes here, Judah leaves behind his brothers and his father. Cass writes, Judah heads out entirely on his own, seeking a new life. Yet his act of independence is also an act of unbrotherliness. It is an act of indifference and abandonment. Cass even goes on to say, and and rightly I think, that, that in a sense Judah commits a kind of fratricide, a kind of murder of his brothers. Remember in the previous chapter, in a way, Judah stopped his brothers from killing Joseph, the other brother, by selling him instead. But here, in this act of abandonment, it's as if Judah deems his whole family as dead to him. And we can understand why he might do this in light of everything that's happened, both in the Joseph narrative and what we saw in the Jacob narrative as well. And so, in a sense, here, by leaving, Judah commits the very act he worked hard to avoid just a few verses earlier. He leaves his family, he settles to a new place, he takes a wife named Shua, and he has three sons with Shua, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And when Ur, his oldest, comes of age, he marries a woman named Tamar, and because of some wickedness that the text doesn't reveal, the Lord puts Ur to death. Ur and Tamar, they they didn't bear a child before Ur dies, and and this means by custom and by the civil law that will come to organize the civic life of Old Testament Israel, by these things, Onan, Ur's younger brother, is obligated to marry Tamar. And we should also note that this regulation that we find here is, is different, is distinct from the moral law that we find In the Old Testament, the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, it is the moral law that is still binding on the Christian life. But we still do well to appreciate the principle of family responsibilities that we find in civil laws such as this, even if they are no longer binding. Specifically, Deuteronomy 25, it instructs Israelite families that in a case like this, The brother has the responsibility to marry his brother's widow and that the firstborn son will actually be the heir of the older deceased brother. And this is so, quote, the family name in Israel will not be blotted out, that it will not be blotted out of Israel. And the rest of the children from there, though, will be heirs and descendants of the younger brothers. And so Onan marries Tamar, but he doesn't actually fulfill his duty. He engages in physical intimacy, but as we read, as Fred read for us, 
Um, he does so in a way that stops, that prohibits pregnancy. And very likely, Onan did this in order to increase his own inheritance. If his older brother has no heir, then there would be less family for Onan to share that family inheritance with, especially the inheritance of the family estate. But there's also a problem here, if you think about this. Onan is also keeping heirs from himself. And what is it that's motivating his actions? There's a poem by Victor Hugo in which uh, the characters of envy and greed, they're offered a choice to have whatever it is they want. But the only condition is, is that the other gets twice the amount of what other, whatever the other one receives. And so how does, does envy answer when it's given this option? I want to be blind in one eye. Of course, the implication is that greed then would be blind in both eyes. And I believe Onan here is embodying this very same approach. He's thinking, I'll keep myself from an heir in order to keep my brother's line from inheritance. And it was often the case in cultures like this that the oldest brother actually got a double portion of the inheritance. And so perhaps Onan is thinking, I'd rather have nothing. I'd rather have nothing than to see my brother get twice as much as me. Because of this wickedness, Onan too is put to death by the Lord. And in all of this, no wrong at all is imputed to Tamar. It's not her, but the wickedness of Ur and Onan that is to blame for their deaths. However, Judah seems to wrongly lay at least some of the fault upon Tamar. Judah knows that he is obligated to give his third and youngest son, Shelah, to Tamar in marriage. This is for her sake, for the sake of Ur, and also for the sake of Onan. And now for Shelah, the first two sons born to him will actually be the heirs of his older brothers. But Judah only pays lip service to this. He actually lies to Tamar. He tells her that when Shelah comes of age, then he will give Shelah to her in marriage. But he has actually no intention of doing this. He's afraid that somehow Shelah will die just like his older brothers did. Again, Judah believes that Tamar is, is at fault in some way. But we see that more than enough time passes for Shelah to come of age and as that happened, two other things happen. Judah's wife, Shua, dies, and Tamar comes to realize that Judah actually has no intention to give her Shelah in marriage. And so Tamar takes shrewd and drastic actions. She disguises herself as a prostitute by taking off her widow's clothing and covering her face with a veil. She waits by the entrance to the city of Anayim, to meet the traveling Judah. And just as Tamar plans, Judah comes to her and he propositions her. He offers Tamar a young goat for her services, which he pledges to her by giving her his signet ring, his cord, and his staff. And these are the very things that Judah uses to identify himself as Judah. For instance, if Judah makes an agreement, he uses the ring to stamp his approval and commitment to follow this agreement through. 
And so in theory, Tamar could use all of these things to enact any number of transactions, financial or otherwise, in Judah's name. This pledge alone shows us that Judah has traded sound judgment for immediate gratification. And notice another very surprising fact. Through all of this, through the the, the most intense form of physical intimacy, Judah does not recognize his daughter-in-law. He sees her body, he instrumentalizes her, but he does not see her. She is simply a tool for his enjoyment. One serious look at Tamar's face would have revealed to him his daughter-in-law's identity. And as readers, in light of all this, we are meant to be angered at Judah's actions. He has separated himself from his brothers and his father and every other member of his family except Shelah. He has forsaken his obligation to raise up heirs for his deceased children. He's renounced his obligations as a child to Jacob. He's renounced his obligation as a brother to his siblings. He's renounced his obligations to Er and Onan as a father. And he's renounced his obligations as a father-in-law to Tamar. And now he reduces Tamar to an instrument. And Judah, through his unvirtuous and self-serving actions, he's placed Tamar within a very, very, very difficult circumstance. She feels that she has to take the shrewdest and most drastic actions in order to get what she is rightly due. The larger society here should have called Judah to account for his withholding Shelah from Tamar. In Deuteronomy 25, there's actually a regulation that allows a woman to publicly shame and separate herself from a family when she is not given the younger brother, like in this very situation. But as a Canaanite woman in a Canaanite culture, this seems not to have been an option for Tamar. So the culture then seems to turn a blind eye to Judah and his conduct. His friend Hurrah even helps Judah carry out all of these indecencies. But a community, a community should be a place which makes it easier to live ethical lives. The church in particular should be a community where love and service and commitment are celebrated and cherished. We're meant to come together as friends, helping each other to become better friends, to come together as parents, helping each other become better parents, helping each other become better spouses, helping each other become better worshipers of Christ Jesus. We come together as those who need one another, and we have an obligation to meet the needs of one another. This is how community is formed, and this is also how we grow and mature. However, despite all of this, in our hearts, we desire to be like Judah. We have a view of freedom that resonates perfectly with Judah. This man who has renounced all of the responsibilities placed upon him. He's renounced his father, his brother, Brothers, his first two sons, and Tamar. And he does this because he wants to be free, or at least how he understands freedom to be. 
But as Willa Catha warns us in her novel, O Pioneers, quote, freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. And all of this happens because of the community breakdown that happens because Judah simply refuses to accept the obligations and responsibilities he should. He refuses to meet the needs that these relationships naturally place upon him. Judah refuses to be needed. He clings to a false view of freedom. And however, here's the thing, we might rightly be angry at Judah. It's the right way to read the text. But the irony is is that our own culture subtly puts Judah forward as the ideal. We are like a people that are trying to put out a fire, but, but trying to put out a fire with gasoline instead of water. Yes, we want to call Judah to account, but we also want to be Judah. We want to be free from obligations and attachments. We want to be able to leave our community at a moment's notice if we feel so inclined. We want to be free to use another person as an instrument for our pleasure and then to be able to walk away without any lingering responsibility. We can dig deeper here. The legal scholar, the legal scholar Erica Bakiaki, in her book, The Rights of Women, she engages deeply with the thought of the 18th century English thinker and activist Mary Wollstonecraft. And Wollstonecraft, she championed many important initiatives for women's rights, such as access to age education, And in Wollstonecraft, she operated with a classical notion of a right. A right is something due to you by the dignity of your nature, which allows you to fulfill the dignity of your nature. For instance, it would be, from this understanding, the right of an acorn to have sun and soil and water, because these things enable it to fulfill its nature, to become what it's supposed to be, to become an oak tree. It needs these things to become what it is meant to be. In the same way, Wollstonecraft demanded education for women because sharing the same intellectual and moral human nature as men, women were due the right of education to grow in the intellectual and moral virtues. However, Wollstonecraft makes a very surprising claim here, one that directly relates to the text at hand. She asks, what is the main obstacle to properly giving women the rights they are due. And she identifies, quote, the one grand cause as the want, as the lack of chastity in men. The male pursuit of physical intimacy outside of the monogamy of marriage, she sees it as poisoning the male psyche making men see women as something, quote, for the sake of a present indulgence. And it worked to limit the role of women to this sole purpose. We might say it made men into instrumentalizers and women into the instrumentalized. And along the way, it set up a horrible double standard where men were praised for their exploits, but women were ruined for even a rumor of such behavior. And so men set themselves on a course that, if successful, could destroy the very reputation of the women that they sought. And we, of course, see this very same double standard in the text at hand. Judah sees himself as innocent, but he wants Tamar to be burned alive. 
As Bakiaki explains, this is why the early suffragists in the United States had the dual chant of votes for women, chastity for men. Of course, one key factor here is pregnancy. As Aristotle pointed out long ago, likely to the surprise of, of no one, male reproduction takes place outside the body, female reproduction takes place inside of the body. And what this means is that sadly, a man can partake of as much physical intimacy as he wants, and he can leave all of his female partners to bear the full weight of responsibility that pregnancy brings. But in our modern world, both men and women can now engage in physical intimacy without the consequences and the gifts of motherhood and fatherhood. This possibility, as Bakiaki points out, has opened up another option for society. Rather than working to foster the virtues of fidelity and commitment and sacrifice in both men and women, instead, we can now, all of us, embrace the male vices that Wollstonecraft aimed to combat. Bakiaki shows us that what we have done is make the unvirtuous male the male who instrumentalizes others for his own pleasure and who refuses the responsibilities of relationships, we have made this unvirtuous male the new ideal. This is what both men and women are now to aspire to. We might say that we've turned Wollstonecraft on her head. Rather than working to create a culture that protects Tamar, We instead have worked to normalize Judah, even to set Judah up as the ideal. Here is a person free from obligations, tethered, untethered from responsibilities, and able to do what he wants, when he wants. He's a person able to engage in physical intimacy whenever and however he desires. When we read this text, we are rightly angered at Judah. But please do realize that in our culture and in our hearts, we so often set up Judah as the ideal. And friends, this ideal continues to subjugate Tamar to Judah, even in modern society. As writers point out, this ideal caters more to the general desires of men and not women. As columnist, writer, and campaigner against male and female violence Louise Perry writes, and she doesn't write this from a Christian perspective, and I've altered this quote a little bit in light of our context. Perry writes this, We know that men, on average, prefer to have more physical intimacy with a larger number of partners, that physical intimacy buyers are almost exclusively male, that men watch a lot more explicit media than women do, and that the vast majority of women, if given the option, prefer a committed relationship to casual physical intimacy. We rightly lament the fact that Tamar must act within the desires and the designs of Judah. But modern ideals of physical intimacy continue to work for the benefit of Judah at the expense of Tamar. This is what happens when our ideal for both men and women become Judah, the unvirtuous male. And please hear me. I'm not coming down on men. Far from it. Bakyaki's work is actually a clarion call for men to take upon themselves the responsibilities and virtues that the flourishing of their communities demand. 
Virtues, friendships, fatherhood, motherhood, all of these are wonderful things that should uniquely flourish in the church community. And on that note, men, please consider joining the study group, the study group on intentional fatherhood. By maturing as fathers, we help to create a community where everyone can flourish better. And of course, this is true for friends and mothers and children as well. As a community, we all need the maturing of one another. Even more, we need the needs of one another in order to become what God intends us to be. And please note, we have all, both men and women, failed in these areas. None of us is wholly innocent from these instrumentalizing gazes and these instrumentalizing actions. And as we'll see later on, this text reaches its culmination in repentance and forgiveness for wrongs such as this. And so with the truth of forgiveness in mind, let us also look at another way we instrumentalize one another through commodification. Judah commodified Tamar by valuing her body at a cost of one goat. And we continue to do this even in the very same way as Judah does. For example, literature professor Alan Noble, he points out that we are are more and more often met with arguments for the legalization of prostitution. The arguments often focus on measurable harm or things that we can count and quantify. For instance, as one argument goes, if we legalize and regulate it, then we can lower the number of disease cases. We make the decision based on things that we can count. We can count the number of infections. But as Noble writes, quote, we can't measure the loss in human dignity that occurs when a person sells their body. We can't even agree that human dignity is a thing or that prostitution is an affront to it. The matter of dignity doesn't even enter into the conversation. Dignity, unlike goats and unlike disease cases, cannot be quantified. And policy, we assume, requires numbers. If we can reduce the number of disease cases, then this is a very good reason, we think, for legalizing the selling of bodies. This is true even when all of us know that this is often, very likely always, by way of coercion or at least some form of coercion. One important thing that the Me Too movement taught all of us is that consent is a weak, slippery, unenforceable, and easily manipulated concept. Consent is crucial, but mere consent does not an ethic make. Among other things, it cannot guard against the various forms of coercion that we encounter in a range of social dynamics. And how much more is this true for women who daily find themselves in the very position that Tamar is in right here in this passage? We can go further still. There is another way that we embody Judah. Remember that Judah readily gives up his signet ring and his staff for physical gratification. In a sense, he readily gives over his identity. He he readily gives over who he is for the sake, for the idol of sexuality. And friends, even the church can be in danger of this. In a culture obsessed with sexuality, the church has often followed suit. Marriage is a good thing, a very good thing. 
But it's not the greatest thing. God alone is the greatest thing. And yet the church has often marginalized the unmarried. It has at times made them feel like less than the married congregants in their midst. And I too apologize for any way that I have done this. And so we should not at all be surprised that persons often leave the church in pursuit of relationships that fall outside of God's prescribed framework for marriage. The church, just like the culture, has told them that sexuality is essential for your flourishing. And so we are willing to do whatever it is that we need to get it. This might involve leaving the church. In dishonoring singleness, we are not only dishonoring some of the greatest Christians in church history, we're also dishonoring Paul and Christ Jesus himself. The church is called to deeply respect and honor both singleness and marriage. In the married mode of life, we experience the life of Eden, of man and woman joined together and commanded to be fruitful. And in the single mode of life, we taste the life of the resurrection itself. For we are no longer given in marriage, but feast with Christ Jesus at the wedding supper of the Lamb. In the church, we taste both the Garden of Eden and the heavenly Jerusalem at one and the same time through the lives of the married and the lives of the single. And both, both should be greatly honored. Another point. But why is the Christian doctrine of marriage so important? Well, think about this text. Our tendency to look upon others as Judah does to Tamar without recognizing her, without truly seeing her. This is why the Christian conviction of keeping physical intimacy within marriage is so, so important. So serious is God that we should never instrumentalize another person, never reduce them to a function of their body. But such physical intimacy can only be practiced within the context of a man and a woman committing themselves wholly to one another. This is not prudish. This is protective. This is not repressive. This is realistic. This keeps us from seeing and treating others as instruments, as tools for fulfilling our own needs and pleasures. And with all of these truths in mind, let us now look more closely at the actions of Tamar. Initially, Judah is outraged and he seeks to enforce this unjust double standard. He wants Hagar to be burned alive while he himself remains innocent and unscathed. But when the whole situation is revealed to him, he says, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And John Calvin, on this verse, he, he makes an important point. Calvin explains that, strictly speaking, Judah does not call Tamar's conduct righteous. Instead, he calls Tamar more righteous than himself. Neither have done rightly, but Judah here has done much worse. Judah has forced Tamar into a situation where she feels like she must take drastic actions. Again, Deuteronomy 25 offers recourse to a woman in just this position, but probably this wasn't an option for Hagar or for Tamar, given her Canaanite culture. But here's the key question. Is the only option open to Tamar, this one of taking everything into her own hands like this? Consider an aspect of the account that we might initially find 
offensive. Because of their evil conduct, the Lord, in, in some way that's not revealed, puts to death her previous husbands, Ur and Onan. The Lord has already saved Tamar from two wicked men. The Lord has already acted miraculously to save her from the evil of others. By custom and by law, she deserves Shelah as her husband. However, she is willing to violate ethics to get what is her due. We should lament for Tamar, and we should be very angry at the situation that Judah has placed her in. It's unjust. However, God has acted miraculously already to preserve and to protect the life of Tamar, and he can most certainly do so again. But friends, this is the very hardest thing in the world to do, to wait on the Lord when you know that what you are asking for is your rightful due. For instance, what would you be willing to do if your employer didn't give you the pay that you were promised? What would you be willing to do if someone falsely attacked your uh, reputation? What would you be willing to do if the coach unfairly cut your kid from the team, even though you know he or she deserves a spot on that team? What would you do if you were denied tenure, if you've clearly met all of the qualifications, even exceeded the qualifications for it? What would you do if you were falsely accused and the accuser knew it? What actions would you, would we, be willing to take to get what is justly owed us? Would we be willing to lie, to go behind someone's back, to do anything and everything to get that person fired? What would we be willing to do to get what is our rightful due? This is one of the greatest temptations that we face. Well, to begin with, let us never put other people in this situation. Let us never put someone in a situation where they have to sin in order to get what is rightfully theirs. Let us be virtuous employers and colleagues and parents and coaches and consumers and spouses and friends. Again, the church should be a place where it is easier to seek goodness. And please hear me. I'm not saying that we should not stand up for ourselves. Far from it. However, in standing up for ourselves, we must never resort to sinful actions to get what it is we deserve. We must learn to wait on the goodness and patience and justice of the Lord. Even if things turn out other than we hope in the present, the same one who miraculously delivered Tamar from the wickedness of Ur and Onan, he will deliver you, even if that means we have to wait for the restoration of all things. You might be acting more righteous than the person that put you in that position, but that doesn't mean that you are acting righteously. So, in light of all of those things taken together, what does this mean for the church? What does all of this mean? And, and, and again, why in the world is all of this in the Joseph narrative? Well, again, it shows us that the Bible does not pull its punches. It understands and it reveals the fallen human condition. Never take that for granted. Scripture meets us where we are and it plainly shows us what the brokenness of a fallen world looks like. 
A sanitized book that avoids the sad and tragic situations of the human life would not be a book for people like us, fallen people who are desperately in need of the grace of God. And it is here amidst all of this mess that God works, that he brings about his good and gracious purposes. Again, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And even here, friends, we see God working his goodness and salvation. And if God can work healing and salvation in a situation like this, one that culminates in an instrumentalizing act of incest, that's pretty bad. If that's true, then no matter what situation in your life seems hopeless, because of God, there is hope. And this is the very reason why we need accounts like this in the Bible. This is the very reason we shouldn't shy away from texts like this in the Bible. This is why we need to see God working in the messiness of a fallen and broken world. And so, specifically, what is the hope that God works here? Well, God brings salvation and repentance to the situation. It begins with Tamar's request after Judah's condemnation of her. She says to him, please identify, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. But this is not the first time in the Joseph narrative that we hear the phrase, please identify, please identify. The same Hebrew phrase is used by Judah and his brothers when they present to Jacob the coat of Joseph stained with the blood of the goat. Please identify. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. As one commentator writes, These words of Tamar, they jar Judah's memory and cut more deeply than even Tamar had expected. Judah here comes face to face not just with his sins against Tamar, but also against his sins to Jacob and also against his sins of Joseph who he has sold into slavery, whose death he has lied about. And what does Judah do? He recognizes his wrong. He repents. He confesses his own unrighteousness. In the presence of everyone gathered, a group that was gathered for a public execution, he declares of Tamar, she is more righteous than I. And it is here that Judah keeps, that he takes, that he takes, his proper position of leadership in the family. Because who would be the natural leader of the family? Well, it would be Reuben, the firstborn. But Reuben has forfeited this because he violated Jacob's wife, Bilhah. But then what about the second and thirdborn? They would be the next in line, Simeon and Levi. But they too have forfeited this position of leadership because of the way they have massacred the people of, of, of Shechem. And we might object, rightly, that Judah, too, has done many bad things, things that are on display in this passage. And absolutely, Judah has done many, many bad things. But unlike his older brother, Judah repents. For instance, when Jacob confronts Simeon and Levi about massacring the city of Shechem, they respond in a way that defends and justifies their actions. But not Judah. He accepts what he has done. He acknowledges his lack of righteousness. We read that he does not engage again with physical intimacy with Tamar, 
And we also know that he rejoins and reconciles with his father and with his brothers for the rest of the Joseph narrative. He is with them. That is a very important and surprising point. It is true that he has not yet confessed his sins to his father about what he has done to Joseph. But Judah's heart is beginning to soften. And friends, God is patient. He's patient with Judah. He's patient with us. And so finally, when Judah is confronted by Joseph later in the narrative, Judah will rightly repent and he will lament his actions. Why is this account here? Well, this is the preparation of Judah to rightly lead his brothers when they encounter Joseph. This is the account of God preparing Judah to rightly confront the evil that both he and his brothers have worked amidst the prevailing and pervading goodness of God. And the last thing, this being the most important, one of the twins born to Tamar, Perez, will carry on the messianic line. It is through Perez and his descendants that Christ Jesus will be born, and it is through Christ that God works his great and gracious salvation. And it is this messianic line that will be preserved by way of Joseph's actions when he's able to provide food amidst a very terrible famine. However, in Christ's salvation, we see a great, great contrast to the present passage. Remember that Judah withholds his son Shelah for fear of his son's death. However, God the Father does exactly the opposite with his son, Jesus Christ. God gives us his son, Jesus Christ, to the bride that is the church. And God does so precisely because this son must die for his bride, the church. And in this case, it is us, the bride, who must look over and say to the groom, he is more righteous than I. In fact, he alone is righteous. And this son, too, like Ur and Onan, is a son that God puts to death. But not for his own wickedness, but for our wickedness. On the cross, Christ takes upon himself the death that Ur merited, that Onan merited, that each of us has merited for rejecting and instrumentalizing God and neighbor, But not long after Christ's death, not long does the church cease mourning as a widow. Because three days after that, Christ is raised from the dead. This is the Savior who will be born of Judah and Tamar. This is the Son who dies for our wickedness. This is the Son who is not withheld for the fear of death, but given for death. This is the Son who does not cover us with a veil to hide our faces, but the Son who covers us with his own righteousness. And so let us, like Judah, let us repent. Let us turn to Christ and put our faith in him He is the son who freely offers to take the punishment we deserve and lavish upon us his own righteousness. And let us, let us like Judah, let us look forward to his coming. He's already come once, but he will come again. And when he does, he will set all things right, even and especially the tragic, lamentable, and messy kinds of situations that we encounter in this present passage. 
Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who sees our fallen situations, our brokenness, our messiness. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who works amidst all of this. Lord, if you can be the God of Judah, you can be the God of anyone in this room. And that's because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.